Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is Friday, September 11th, 2015. I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana. I'm joined again tonight by my co-host, Naomi, in California. How are you doing this evening, Naomi? Hey, Keith. I'm doing very well, thank you. Very excited about our guest. We haven't had a live guest in a while, and this one looks like a it's going to be a very interesting conversation. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, me too. And, and our guest uh, tonight is uh, John B. Diamond. He's the host Bascom Associate Professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis and a faculty affiliate in the Department of Afro-American Studies and Educational Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, one of the best schools in the country. And uh, he's a co-author of a new book um, called Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. And I should mention his co-author on that book is Amanda E. Lewis, who's a, a professor, I believe, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. But uh, our guest tonight is John B. Diamond. Uh, how are you doing tonight, John? Oh, I'm doing great. Glad to be with you. Wonderful. And we're excited to have you on. I think our listeners will find this interesting. And uh, um, I guess the book, again, is called Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. And uh, one of the things you talk about there in there is, uh, uh, I guess, the racial achievement gap. How do you define the racial achievement gap? And what exactly is racial about that gap? Right. I mean, the, the way that the racial achievement gap is typically defined is the gap between the average performance of um, black um, and Latino students in comparison to their um, white um, and Asian peers. Um, and what is typically looked at are things like test scores, grades, graduation rates, um, other forms of educational attainment like graduation from college and graduate school, um, and other kinds of indicators of academic outcomes that people pay attention to. And so when we think about the racial achievement gap, um, oftentimes people will look at those average scores and, and, and make claims about um, how those patterns exist, why those patterns exist, and try to create explanations for those patterns. I mean, I think the, the challenge that um, Amanda and I tried to address was looking you know, specifically at how does race matter day-to-day in schools? How does race matter um, in our daily interactions with people? How does race matter structurally in terms of where people live, where they go to school, and how is that connected to historical patterns? And then how do those two things, the sort of structures of inequality and the dynamic interplay that people engage in when they're wor- interacting with each other in the context of schools, how does that come become sort of embedded in organizational processes and practices um, during the school day, things like discipline, um, educational tracking and ability grouping, um, uh, the engagement of parents in the educational process. So we really tried to figure out, based on what we're learning about race and how it works, what can that tell us about how we can expect it to play out in schools? And John, I would, going on that same thread, I'm going to kind of deviate from our our questions here. I'm going to ask you: Do you find a difference between um, schools that maybe have a higher um, population of students that, for example, need uh, free or reduced lunches? Um, do you find that there's a difference as far as achievement with with children that are maybe in a more um, homeless population, or 
transit, you know, a transitory population. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to? Yeah, I do. I, I do. Um, if I can uh, try to answer that, I, I, there are clearly differences um, based on on young people's backgrounds, um, where they where they live, what uh, sort of family income they have. Um, if they have a place to stay at all, if they're homeless. One of the things that we tried to do with our case study is we looked at a place called Riverview, which is a middle-class suburban school context that has been integrated uh, voluntarily since the early 1960s, um, has a stable racial mix of students in the school, where people moved to the community because they felt like it was a place that um, had a, a nice, uh, a diverse set of students um, it's a suburban context that's near a major city in the Midwest, and most of the suburban contexts around Riverview are predominantly white. And so the white residents and the black residents and Latino residents actually moved to uh, Riverview in part because it was a, a, a good school system with a good reputation, but also a diverse one. And um, the reality of, of our case was that most of the folks who lived there were middle class, even the, the uh, across communities. And so we we thought of this as a place where we could really try to understand um, race in and of itself as an, uh, a factor in the educational experiences of students. Um, yeah, but you know, as you raised initially, certainly there are you know the typical studies of race and race and inequality look at um, these patterns across schools that have very different kinds of backgrounds, particularly segregated schools with with high percentages of, uh, of low income students. Yeah, and I, I think what makes makes some of your research so fascinating is you've you've sort of uh I don't know how to say it, maybe isolated some of the other variables that play in and so you can focus on the comparison of the way students are treated in the same school where where race is different but where the socioeconomic background and some of the other factors might not be so different so that you can sort of isolate race as a variable in some ways. Um and, and I know uh, your co-author in this study uh, comes from a different background than you do. Um, her name is Amanda Lewis. And how did your different backgrounds, uh, both in terms of gender and race, impact your work together as a team? Right. Well, um, I'm black. I'm a black man who grew up in the U.S., in the Midwest. Um, Amanda Lewis is a white woman who grew up on the West Coast in San Francisco. And so we, we came to this study having known each other for quite a long time. So on one level, our friendship um, and our sort of um, intellectual work together previously, you know, sort of shaped how we interacted with each other um, and understood things. So we had a lot of common knowledge. We're both trained as sociologists. We both have studied race and inequality. We've both been studying schools for 10, 15 years. And so um, that part of our relationship allowed us to sort of have um, some level of common understanding. But the th the ways that our, our race and, and gender sort of shaped what we did, first of all, when we interviewed people, we tried to um, match as much as possible um, on gender and race. Um, so Amanda and I took the lead on certain sets of interviews. I interviewed the majority of the African-American students. Amanda in interviewed, um, along with some of her graduate students, many of the um, white students. Um, we we matched um Around the parents who we interviewed, Amanda actually interviewed a number of the white parents, while I interviewed a number of the black parents. Um, and you know, in all, we interviewed 172 folks from the community. So we weren't necessarily always able to have a perfect match in that. But our, our race and, and gender allowed us to sort of uh, interview people who would be as comfortable as possible talking with us. Um, when you engage in research processes, a lot of times um, if there's a racial mis mismatch or a gender mismatch, that can shape the interaction that you have with the interviewer and the interviewee. So we were able to use our race and gender to, in that way. Um, I think the other way that it impacted um, the way we um, work together is that there was some balancing involved. Um, our experiences have shaped how we see things, um, you know, a lot of times we think about research as a completely objective process, and we do the research that we do as qualitative researchers. Um, we're not striving for um, some false sense of objectivity. What we're striving for is to be aware of the subjective nature um, of, of our own uh, potential interpretations, and we guard against that. Um, and so we served as sort of a possible check 
um, against any potential biases that might have come into the research process as well. Well, John, you also uh, talk about uh, good intentions and bad outcomes and the space in between them. Um, can you talk to us about what you mean by that, that it's something that's filled by the daily interactions between school policy or racial ideology? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I was, as I was saying before, we were trying to understand how everyday practice um, inside schools, the day-to-day interactions, as well as sort of the broader structural inequality sort of manifest inside the context of the school. Um, one way to think about that is to think about um, sort of the organizational processes or organizational routines that people engage in in the context of a school. So if you can imagine a school or any organization, actually, um, when people come into the school building, there are routines that they engage in and, and the sort of morning rituals that, that happen in the school day, the Pledge of Allegiance or other things that people might engage in, teacher lunch breaks. But there are also other processes that we engage in, um, like discipline processes or, or tracking processes, that people have sort of a common sense understanding of how those things work in the context of schools, right? Um, and there's a sort of basic understanding, for example, that discipline is fair because discipline processes are guided by sort of the idea that if you break a rule that is sort of stated in the school rule book and you're caught breaking that rule, that you are punished for breaking that rule and that you go through a process of punishment um, and then an outcome is, is sort of um, reached. Um, but there are also ways that, you know, there's this idea of a routine that we think about, but there's also how that routine is practiced. And what we argue is that it's the practice of the routine that actually matters. It's how people interact in the context of, of, of their daily uh, engagement that really matters. And I, I can give one example if I'm, I'm not being too long-winded about this. If you think about employment, um, you know, on one level, employment is pretty straightforward. You find people who need a job, um, you recruit them to apply for the job, and you give the job to the most qualified person. But we also know that race, for example, plays a role in who gets a job. You can take uh, two resumes with the same qualifications and change the name on one resume to one that is traditionally associated with African Americans and that person is less likely to get a call back. Or you can uh, take people in the labor market and, um, as Diva Pager has done, have them go out, uh, have field testers go out who are black, Latino, and white. The white person can identify themselves as someone who has a felony record, and the African-American Latino person with the exact same resume can identify themselves as, as people who have never um, had any criminal record, but the white person is still more likely to get a call back than the African-American Latino person, right? And so the idea that it's a fair process, the sort of idea of the routine is very different oftentimes from the practice of the routine. And we suggest that some of those same things happen in the context of schools because how people perceive each other, how whites often perceive African-American students shapes how they're treated in the context of the school. Yeah, and in that sense, too, like you say there's there are a thousand small, almost invisible ways that teachers convey to children whether or not they expect them to succeed. And what, in, in your mind, are some of the most prevalent, uh, and how have you seen them uh, meted out differently to children on the basis of race? Well, um, here's here's one example. Um, you know, school discipline, and I'll, I'll come back to the discipline uh, piece uh, before talking about the academic piece. Um, school discipline policies and practices are not just about suspending or expelling people. They're also about letting people know who's a full citizen in the context of the school, um, helping students to feel sort of appreciated or not appreciated, and setting the boundaries around the kinds of behaviors that are acceptable or not acceptable. One of the things that was surprising to us on one level but also um, came out clearly in interviews that we conducted with blacks, Latinos, and whites across the school context and parents, teachers, and students was that um, the rules were not enforced equally in the context of Riverview High School. Um, what was clear, for example, um, clearly stated in the rule book was that during class period, students were not to be in the hallways without a hall pass. Um, what we found, though, when we talked to students, uh, many of them white um, as well as black and Latino, they said that 
white students were almost never stopped for not having a hall pass, whereas black students, particularly black males, were often stopped and asked to demonstrate that they had a hall pass. Um, in fact, one white girl said to us um, that, you know, it's just not fair. Um, I'll walk down the hall as this middle-class white girl, and no one ever stops me, but then a black kid walks by and he gets a Saturday detention, and it's just not fair, right? And so there are clear ways that there are signals being sent about race and treatment um, of people based on race um, that are um, happening on a daily basis that are not, not necessarily intended to be biased, but actually function in a way that leads to sorts of racial bias. Another example of that, if I, if I may uh, continue, uh, is how students uh, perceive expectations being communicated in the context of the school. Another pattern that was sort of um, demonstrated across uh, interviews with, with all students was that black students and Latino students were not expected to do as well as their white counterparts. And these messages were sent um, to students by teachers in a number of different ways. One very clear example of this is an African-American student um, or African-American students um, were showed up in, in classrooms that were honors and advanced placement-level classes and told that they must be at the wrong period and, and essentially told that they needed to wait till the next period because clearly they couldn't be students who were in honors or advanced placement classes. So it's these oh daily messages and these daily um, sort of indignities, um, what people often call racial microaggressions, that um, that sort of define what the environment looks like. And feels like that's that's um you know it's horrible <laughs> um and the fact that students that recognize it speaks volumes uh and it should speak volumes to the teachers and the administrators if if the students themselves are recognizing hey i'm I'm walking around campus virtually unnoticed, and yet my counterpart that's a latino a young young male student, you know, he gets questioned immediately. You know, the fact that that's noticed by the students, that says something about the, the gap or the disconnect between what the administration, what the teachers think they're supposed to do and what they're actually, um, what they're actually, the message they're actually conveying to the, to the students. Yeah, and um, it's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, please go. Go ahead. We have plenty no, of time. It, go ahead. Okay, sure. It, it's very interesting too because oftentimes the administrators, <clears throat> excuse me, also recognize this as a pattern. They just weren't always sure what to do about it. So one um, oh, administrator told us that she often uh, met with students and had to send them back to class during a, a class period. And she said that whenever she asked if they needed a hall pass to get back to class, um, white students said, oh, well, I won't get stopped. Black students always ask for the hall pass. And so there was sort of, you know, evidence across people who we spoke with um, that these patterns um, were something that folks recognized. The, the school that you did your, um, going back to Riverview, where you did your research, you said this was a, in a, a, a was it a diverse community? Was it predominantly white in the Midwest? It was a relatively diverse community. So the student population was about 47% um, uh, white and about 35% African-American. Um, it was okay. about 8.5% 8, 8 Latino and about 2.5% Asian. So it was relatively um, racially diverse uh, with predominantly black and Latino students, uh, black and um, white students in the school. But, you know, and getting back... Was it was it a school that was like you said people chose to have their children there because it was a school they felt they could achieve higher academic success? Is that fair to say? It's fair to say that because the the other thing that I didn't mention before is that you know the school has this racial diversity, but it also is rated among the top schools in the state year after year. Um, it's a school that's highly resourced. Most of the teachers have master's degrees. Um, it spends more than than the commute, the large city next door, um, in terms of per people expenditures. So it's seen as a as a good system, and a diverse well, system. Well, with that being said, why do you think that if as a as a teacher, if I if I know I'm in a diverse school population, and I know that parents are the children that are the children that are students in these schools because 
they're here because their parents want them to succeed and want them to aspire to go further than than high school, let's say. So why would I still treat the Latino or the black students with suspicion or with kind of a lesser enthusiasm knowing that they're um, that I'm not teaching in, and I don't mean this in a, in a disrespectful way, I'm not teaching in an inner city where I'm just grateful there's kids that are here. I'm teaching where there's parents that are maybe more apt to become involved with their students as far as homework and projects and academics and athletics, et cetera, extracurricular. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, why is, it still that, why is there still that, that thought process with teachers, you know, when they should say, well, you know, these kids are, you know, they're great kids, they're top, they're cream of the crop, they're here because they want to be here, their parents want them here, let's let's not label them, they're just all students here together to, to be equal and to learn. Why, why yeah. do you think that there's still that, that stigma? Well, I think, you know, the interesting thing is that it's, it's um, part of the reason that the title of the book is Despite the Best Intention, is that we don't believe people have um, ill will or, na- or um, bad intentions in, as they're interacting with students. Uh, I think across education, most people don't go into education because they don't want students to succeed. Um, they go into fair, education fair enough, yeah. and they, they, they deal with, um, you know, sort of not being paid a great deal of money and dealing with particularly right. now the sort of anti-teacher sentiment that's out there. They go into education because they want to make a difference. Um, and right. many of the teachers and most of the teachers here, I believe, and the administrators are very committed to racial justice and to racial equality. The challenge comes in um, because of the way that race permeates our social interactions and our social lives. There are ways that even people who espouse the best intentions and believe in racial equality still have racial bias seep into their daily interactions. And it's through a process that um, people have talked about as unconscious bias. When you have uh-huh. a society in which you, race is you know, consistently portrayed and African Americans are, are consistently portrayed as unintelligent, uh, uh, their bodies are, are traditionally seen as criminal bodies with criminal intent. Um, there's an association between blackness and violence. When all those things permeate what we see on television, what we see in the media, what we hear um, on news reports, and um, what gets perpetuated as our understanding of African Americans, particularly males, that mm-hmm. shapes how people interact in the context of a school. At the same time, given that the that intelligence and race have traditionally been intertwined in people's minds and in the ways that race is portrayed, um, the entire domain of school becomes a context in which the intellectual possibilities of African Americans and Latinos, to a certain extent, are also um, seen as less than 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 those of whites. And so, even if one espouses the best intentions and believes deeply in equality there are subtle ways that they communicate um, the belief that um, their black students may not do as well, ways that they Mm -hmm. communicate the idea that their black students might be doing something wrong, and ways, for example, that they communicate to African-American parents that their involvement may not be as honored or desirable as the the involvement of, of white parents. But I think a key part of it is that we're not suggesting that people are doing this intentionally. What we're suggesting Mm -hmm. is that uh, many subtle uh, processes over time uh, accumulate into unequal outcomes or contribute to unequal outcomes. Yeah, I think unconscious bias is is a good word for that. I noticed on the, uh, I have a copy of the book, and I noticed on the back jacket that uh, one of the people who reviewed it favorably was Eduardo Bonillo Silva, who's the author of the book Racism Without Racists, and I think, you know, about colorblind racism in the 21st century, or so, so-called colorblind racism. And I, I think um, unconscious bias, of course, is in his work and a lot of sociologists' work where, where the idea here isn't that these teachers and administrators are, are racists in the sense that most people think of racists, but the fact is that in our society people tend to perpetuate racism, even well-intentioned liberal people committed to racial equality, sometimes even people who are members of racial minorities themselves. I mean, there's ways that the bias gets reproduced, so you have black police officers sometimes maybe internalizing the same bias that their white um, colleagues do with regards to suspects, and you have white liberal teachers and administrators somewhat unaware of what they're doing, but they're 
they're um, committing processes or doing things that are are replicating or or perpetuating racism, even though they may not be consciously doing that and may have no desire to do that. And I think I think that's why it's important that, like you mentioned, the book is about how race, racial inequality thrives in good schools. I think a lot of people realize that there's inequality in bad schools, maybe where people aren't even committed to racial justice. But I think the important thing that your research finds is that even where people have the best intentions, we're falling short of what what we could be doing or what hopefully would would be closer to what we need to be doing. Right, right. And I I do want to go back and clarify very quickly. I I do not in any, in any way mean to infer that the school of Riverview where you did your research is um, a school that has a lot of people with you know racial um, problems. It's I, I'm not trying to imply that all this happens everywhere. I just was curious about that specific school. But I, I thank you for explaining that. It's very very mind opening eye opening for me. Um, John, please tell us why is there still the notion around that black students are not committed to education? Why does that persist? Why do, why do, um, you know, how did your research find that the educational aspirations of black students they're actually higher than their white peers? But why do, why do we still have that notion that black students are maybe quote unquote lazy or don't want to go on to higher education? They're more more likely inclined to take a uh, minimum wage job or maybe a, a job that would be a, a trade like a plumber, a mechanic, something like that. Why do we still have that? Right. I mean, I think that, it, again, it goes back to the ways and the reasons that racial um, ideologies were constructed. So race really is tied to um, a system of uh, justification, essentially, for exploitation. So if you wanted to have a system of slavery, you needed to have a, a, an ideology, a racial ideology that supported it. And that racial ideology mm. was that African Americans were not civilized, African Americans had to be dehumanized, and that racial ideology at the core of of how race has been defined, it's been defined as a hierarchy in which whites are superior and African Americans are inferior. And that was tied to intellectual cap- capabilities. It was tied to um, essentially being considered um, less than human. And so part of the challenge is that when we think about um, contemporary context, the idea that African Americans aren't invested in education, are lazy, are not committed to doing the things that it requires to be a part of society sort of per- has been perpetuated over time. Now, of course, you know, we just, you know, you just keep talked about um, this idea that Eduardo Benia Silva talks about. There's always been a shift in how racial ideology gets presented. So when you move from slavery to Jim Crow, you had a shift in the racial ideology. When you move mm-hmm. to Jim Crow, from Jim Crow to the post-civil rights era, you had another shift in racial ideology. And the racial mm-hmm. ideology in the contemporary context has shifted from one of sort of biological inferiority to one of cultural inferiority, right? And so what we get is what Eduardo Benia Silva calls the sort of biologization of culture. In other words, turning sort of cultural inequality or cultural inferiority into essentially the same thing that biological inferiority uh, represents. So that's a long-winded response to say that what often happens is that people suggest that black students aren't invested in education because of their culture in the same way that they said black students couldn't achieve academically because of their biology. And it resonates so well with this dominant ideology that it becomes sort of part of how we understand the world, the racial stories that we tell ourselves. The unfortunate reality is that when people believe that, they're less likely to invest in the education of black students because, Mm -hmm. of course, black students aren't doing well, the argument goes, because they're not invested, because their parents aren't invested, because there's sort of a cultural uh, deprivation or limitation within the community. Um, The irony is, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to give you a a quick, um, I was going to jump in with a a quick little example. Uh, On the other side of the coin, growing up in a uh, Mexican-American family, my parents are second-generation I'm sorry, my parents are first-generation Americans, and they were uh, both born during the Depression with large families. Um, My mom was one of seven, my dad was one of nine. 
And um, by the time my my dad was the the last one, so by the time my dad came around uh, to going to school, um, it wasn't common. He was the only one that actually graduated from high school. Um, his brothers and sisters uh, worked to help, you know, put food on the table. Um, right. And so it was it wasn't expected. Uh, he was in a in a, a very small town in New Mexico. The the town quote unquote was uh, run or owned by the the white company, the uh, Kennecott Copper Mine Corporation. So if your parents had a job with the mine, you were in because you worked for the company, and the company provided your housing. The company owned the hospital. The company owned the stores, the schools, etc. So my point being that. Uh, a lot of the teachers, and there weren't any Mexican American teachers with my, my the, the high school my parents went to, in the in the same town, they weren't my parents weren't expected to achieve anything. They were you know, my mom was probably just going to go and work in a restaurant or you know whatever. My father was not expected to do anything but maybe just uh, you know be a mechanic or work in the fields or he wasn't expected to do anything. And I my father will often tell me you know that was really. That was really hard for me. It was a defining moment when I was a, you know, a sophomore. When I was told, well, you don't really need to finish school because you're not really going to do anything. You're not, you're not going to go to college. Um, so anyway, long story short, I, I hear those stories and I'm, it's kind of resonating with what you're saying. With, you know, my both of my parents, especially my mom, you know, to graduate from high school from a Mexican American family, you know, she, she was the only one. But she was in the middle of seven. My dad was the last of nine. But they did graduate from high school. They both entered the service, and my father uh, did go to uh, college when he uh, he was in his forties. <laughs> he went and actually wow. got a degree in, in Latin American um, studies, Latino studies. But he di- he he does say he does remember that hurtful feeling when teachers would tell him, you know, you're not going to do anything. You really don't need to go on to college. You, you know, you're not. Why are you trying out? You know, for these things, or why are you doing this? You know, you're you're a Mexican. Yeah. You're not going to do anything. Um, and so it happens. It's cyclical. You know, it was in the 30s. Now we're talking about today um, with African American students. It's it's awful. It's yeah, awful it's that, it, yeah. that it exists like that. Yeah, and it's really. I mean, I'm it's sorry. really. I mean, it's it's the the perseverance um, that it requires to be to overcome those those roadblocks and those obstacles. I mean, it. You know, it's it's. You know the the fact that um, your dad and and others have this extra burden to carry um, in order to to achieve um, what is in some ways laid out in front of other people um, as sort of just a, an assumed path. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, dem- yeah. it demonstrates both the sort of the the sort of um, ways in which people are are kept away from opportunity, and also the ways that people yeah. persevere and are resilient to reach those opportunities. Yeah. And, yes. and, and, and that's, what if he, yeah, what fascinating. If, what if he had had a teacher that did mentor him and say, "Wow, I see something in you, and I want to help you. I want to, I want to, you know, give you the the opportunities." And he didn't have anyone. He just was like, "I have to do this. I I need to do this." And there's a lot of students out there today that are the same way. You know, they go without mentors. They go without someone saying, "I believe in you. You can do this." And they, like you said, they just persevere. You know, good for them. Right. That they do right. it in spite of the obstacles that you you've explained. Right, and I think the uh, you know the interesting thing and the you know the the thing that that adds insult to injury essentially is what winds up happening in these sort of narratives about cultural deprivation and lack of investment is that, and in spite of all that desire for educational achievement that we see, and despite all of the hopes and dreams of parents. Um, around education, the story that gets told in the case that you're talking about is a story of, well, you know, the Mexican-Americans don't care about education because they didn't graduate from high school, right? So the roadblocks mm-hmm. are all there, but the narrative that gets told is a, a victim-blaming narrative, essentially, that says, oh, well, this didn't happen because of the community itself, not because of the structural inequalities and the, the roadblocks we put in the way. Um, which is, you know, sort of the the cruel trick of of that kind of ideology. Wow. I guess yeah, the other. I, I mean, I'm sorry. Keith. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the other, the other, the other irony is that you know what we found when we you know sort of surveyed students, we surveyed 14 or 15 school districts, about 25,000 students, is that black students actually have higher educational aspirations have more positive peer pressure, less negative peer pressure, um, and want to go further in school um, than their white counterparts. And so, 
even um, the sort of idea that black students in our study were less invested in education isn't supported by the evidence. Um, so it just adds, you know, sort of, and, and, our, and we're not alone in this. Um, there are a number of studies that the preponderance of the evidence um, sort of supports a lack of oppositional culture among black students. It's almost like the whole climate uh, change uh, debate where all, almost all the evidence supports one argument, um, but there's still a, 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 a support for, for the side that doesn't have the empirical evidence to support it. That alone, I think a lot of people would find surprising in, in that, but I don't particularly just because, I mean, because like you, I'm a sociologist, so I, but, but I mean, I think most the cultural, um, most people would probably probably buy into the myth of, of, of African-American students um, being less achievement motivated, and, and that's unfortunate because it, it becomes sort of a self-perpetuating ideology that that doesn't match with the empirical evidence but it doesn't tend to matter because the myth is more powerful than the reality for most people in terms of what what their perception is um one thing i was going to mention if 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 you've just joined us our guest is john b diamond and uh he's talking about his book co-authored with amanda lewis called despite the best intentions how racial inequality thrives in good schools I was going to mention briefly that next week on Liberal Fix, our guest will be James Kilgore, who's the author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. Um, we're a little past half past the hour, and I want to get back into the uh, discussion a little bit of culture, which I'll ask a question about. But, Naomi, did you also want to tell our listeners where they can find us on social media briefly? Oh, sure. Uh, you can find us at www.liberalfix.com. Uh, dot com and if you go there you can uh, find all of our shows you'll find this one after tonight all of our shows are archived we've had some awesome guests including our our guest tonight um, you can also find us on Facebook just hit liberal type in liberal fix in the search engine we're also on Twitter uh, you can follow Keith who writes he's a full time writer for Politicus USA um, he's at, on Twitter at Keith Brickus. Um so follow his articles and um, you can also find us on. Um, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank. I said the website. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm so involved fix. with this conversation. <laughs> yes, we have our our website, Twitter, and then you can also follow uh, uh, Keith. But yeah, let's get back to uh, our guest. This is. I'm so. Yeah, I wanted to like, continue a little on excited. cultural style um, with, uh, um, and you know, just some buzzwords. You know, khakis, cornrows, Abercrombie and Fitch. Low hanging, low hung baggy pants. Um, those are cultural styles, very different cultural styles. Um, though anything but equal in the eyes of school officials. What role does presentation, for example, clothing, hair, language, play in the expectations teachers have for students, as well as how they actually treat those students? Yeah, I, we found this to be, you know, not unexpected, but actually. Um, pretty powerful that, you know, students come into schools, and one of the things that adolescents are doing, um, and I, I should mention that we were focused primarily on high school students, one of the things that adolescents are doing is trying to find their identity. They're they're trying to find groups of people they can hang out with. They're trying to express themselves in terms of their hairstyles and their clothing styles, and they're trying to um, find acceptance among their peer group, perhaps even more so than, than teachers and administrators. But one of the things that we found is that clothing was very racially coded in the school. It was coded around race and social class. Um, and so one of the things that emerged from our interviews with, with folks in the school is that there were certain styles that were looked down upon, and those tended to be the styles associated with African Americans. So people's hairstyles like cornrows, um, baggy pants, um, and any number of things that were associated with African American culture were often looked down upon, whereas um, button-up shirts and khaki pants um, that might be associated with stores like Abercrombie and Fitch um, were were seen in positive ways. And so, one of the ways that this manifested itself is that you know students talked about the fact that if you know a student walked down the hall and they were wearing um, baggy pants or pants that were hung a little bit low that they were seen as a troublemaker no matter what they did, whereas a student who came into the school with, you know, 
um, clothes associated with middle-class culture like khakis and button-up shirts, they were often assumed to be uh, students who weren't going to cause problems or cause trouble. And, you know, the students expressed to us that, you know, the clothing styles didn't necessarily um, carry any identification with anything that related to school achievement or investment in school, but they were often treated as if they did. And the implications were um, that black students and Latino students often felt that they had to make a sacrifice and make a choice. They either embraced their peer culture um, and suffered or embraced um, the culture of the school, which was largely dictated by middle-class white styles. And so there was a trade-off that they had to engage in, a sort of um, balancing act, for lack of a better word, that they had to um, engage in to be successful in the context of the school. Um, and so it, it, it struck us that, you know, this was a tough choice, a tough set of choices for young people to have to make in order to be successful in school. Well, I'm going to jump in on that one <laughs> because, <laughs> okay. I, well, here, here's here's what, what, I, what I think, or here's how I see, you know, my, my little pocket of the world here. So I'm going to be, completely honest. I'm in a very diverse community where I live right now. Um, I I grew up and went to um, private Catholic schools, Catholic high school, um, and you know we had uniforms. Um, there are some schools down here, elementary schools, that do have you know uniform, um, but the high schools do not. So I see these, you know, the the children, the students when I'm driving around picking up kids and you know picking up my neighbors and whatnot. So I can see the the, the diversity that we have in the community. I you know, when I go in the library with my daughters and I, I see these, you know, button-down shirt khaki people, I also see the low-hanging pants and whatnot, I'm more afraid of the attitude than the dress. If I hear someone talking disrespectfully, I don't automatically turn and go, oh, they must be wearing cornrows and, you know, gang-affiliated clothing. I'm more afraid of their attitude and what what their kind of, pushing out to me, if that makes sense. I, you know, if there's, you know, the library or whatever, the the student helpers and, you know, and they're dressed, you know, in their, like you said, in their peers, how, how they want to dress, how they feel accepted, how they're trying to um, find their you know, spot in life. This is their identity. I'm not intimidated or afraid of that. I don't have a bad um, look at them. It's more to me. It hits me with their body language and their attitude, their their verbal, you know, how they articulate themselves. That's more scary to me than. Their and hair even and the some clothing. of them might be cultural styles. When you get into language, what some people might perceive as attitude might be just different cultural styles. I don't mean True. that. That's True. what you're referring to. But I mean that sometimes people, I think, can sort of conflate those things and say, well, that person has an attitude because they're not, you know, talking the king's English or saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, or something. I don't know. I I don't know. your thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I mean, I think that gets into the dynamics of what we talk about with regard to sort of, you know, cultures of respectability, culture of respectability, Um, you know, the extent to which, you know, traditionally what people have often said is, you know, if blacks or Latinos acted uh, more like white middle class people, they wouldn't run into the same kinds of problems that that they do in society. And we've seen, you know, and I think this has come up and been brought to the fore in in, in discussions around policing. I'm thinking about um, mm-hmm. uh, the tennis player um, Blake, who was, you know, just um, accosted in New York City, um, and he was very much in within the culture of respectability, but got the same treatment as someone who. Um, we often see getting that treatment who doesn't sort of exhibit the respectable culture. And so I think one of the challenges is, you know, once we start policing the boundaries of, of respectability and assuming that respectability culture equals a, a, mech, a key to social mobility or, or better treatment, we run into the the realities that it doesn't necessarily um, uh, always work that way um, for people. Right. The other, the, I guess the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, uh, what people often do in schools, unfortunately, is they assume that a certain kind of language style, an accent, a certain kind of sort of colloquial um, expression, 
suggests that young people aren't intelligent. And so the, mm. the negative implications of that can be pretty um, dire for, for young people who um, have a different way of expressing themselves uh, culturally. Um, you know, I think about, for example, in recent years, some of the ways in which um, debate uh, championships have been decided and some of the urban schools um, have, have uh, been very successful using a new style of debate that is rooted in um, a more rapid exchange, influenced by hip-hop culture, but also very intellectually rigorous in terms of how their material is being presented. And they've been successful based on judging, but they've also been ridiculed for their style of expression. And so I think one of the challenges for schools is to be able to embrace multiple forms of intellectual ability um, and multiple styles in which it can be presented, um, because I think that is how we, um, in a society that values diversity, um, successfully embrace it. Well, I think you just answered my my question to you about, you know, what do we do as far as you know, parents, teachers, administration, as a as a as a village, what do we do to to get that gap narrowed about racial diversity and racial equality in our schools and I think I think you just hit the nail on the head we have to embrace just as teachers say well we we want to teach to the the students learning style we want to if they're more of a visual learner we want to get that for them if they're more of an audio uh, learner we want to help them that way we should also embrace that there's different cultures and different you know I don't like that saying really, but, you know, it is. there's different ways to skin a cat. You know, there's different ways to, to teach. Right. And there's also different ways that ch- that children learn based on their culture. It doesn't have to be a negative. Um, it can, for the teacher, for the administration, it, it really should be something that we embrace and welcome because all of it is, you know, there is no wrong or right way. Um, when it comes to culture, it is you know you have your traditions, you have your background, and and what your parents and your your uh, your your if you want to say your race brings to the table. Um, but you're right, we should we should embrace that diversity rather than try and stifle it and say no, that's not the way you're supposed to learn. You know, you have to learn this way. Um, right. So uh, uh, go ahead, Keith. I'm sorry. I know we could go, oh, we no, could go for two hours with you. We have to help you back, <laughs> <laughs> or I'll, I'll just call you later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Well, one thing I did uh, just on the cultural style thing. One thing I found interesting is, of course, uh, my background is different than both of yours, being that I I grew up in a mostly homogenous white community of relative class. Yeah, privilege. you were you I were middle class you were a townie. You yeah, absolutely. Me, I was. <laughs> so, you know, so I don't. You know, I mean, and 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 certainly the teachers all expected achievement. If anything, though, we, you know, the the one thing is that kids would wear um, heavy metal T-shirts or whatever, which is sort of the white rebellion, fake rebellion, mostly because most of these are these weren't working class kids wearing the heavy metal shirts. They were still doctors and engineers kids but but there was an assumption on the teachers that the people that walked in with the Ozzy Osbourne t-shirt weren't committed to education and were dumber or whatever which wasn't wasn't (laughs) usually true I mean you know those people some of them would be in accelerated classes and stuff too but the teachers would kind of almost have the the perception hmm I wonder why this guy's doing in this classroom he has long hair and he doesn't look like, you know, a smart kid or whatever. And and certainly that's compounded when you have race and, and other factors in there as well as styles of dress. But even even in homogenous white schools, I think you can see some of that just based on appearance and respectability politics, if what you will. Although the difference, of course, is that those kids can turn it on or off anytime you want. I mean, an African-American student can never walk in and pass as white, but the the guy with the long hair and the Slayer T-shirt one week can come in the next week and cut his hair and and you know pass as 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 being the respectable white kid or whatever if he wants to you know do right. an interview with uh, with a counselor or somebody college interview or something. I mean they can always turn it on or off, so it's a choice. Whereas if you're Latino or black, often it's not a choice unless you're very light skinned and can somehow pass as white. Um, but um, I wanted to get back to John and. What light does your work shed on why racial inequality persists today in American society, 
uh, more generally, even when so many of the historical historic mechanisms supporting segregation have been um, eliminated or at least theoretically outlawed? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the ways that um, our work sort of sheds lights on, light on these processes and these racial processes is to sort of elaborate and give um, um, concrete examples of the ways in which, you know, this sort of post-civil rights era racism or racism without racist sort of manifests itself. Um, so the ways that race permeates our, our thinking about people, um, we have to recognize that one of the first things we notice about people when they walk through the door is their race. Um, we also notice their their gender or sex as they walk through the door as well. But uh, race um, is one of the first things we recognize, and the racial baggage that we associate uh, with people um, is a powerful influence on how we interact with them. Um, and to recognize that is also to recognize that much of uh, what we notice and much of what we assume um, functions at a subconscious or unconscious level. So you can be very mm-hmm. um, invested in racial equity, as I said before, and still engage in practices that undermine um, racial equality. Um, mm-hmm. And so in many ways, the, the sort of daily interactions and the assumptions that we make, um, particularly in a domain that's about intelligence and about demonstrating that intelligence, um, sort of um, gets undermined uh, by those by those by those assumptions. The other thing I would say is that a lot of the historic mechanisms that are outlawed have not been eliminated. And you know, as you sort of made that distinction, right. I think it's important. Um, you know, in terms of residential segregation, we still have a very segregated society. Um, you know, here in, in Wisconsin and in, in, in Illinois, where I live, there there are um, really uh, stark examples um, of 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 segregation in Milwaukee, in Chicago, in Gary, Indiana, in Madison, Wisconsin, that segregation is still functioning, um, is still keeping people separated from each other and still um, shaping the the possibilities for interaction. So I think some of the sort of old-fashioned racism still exists, as we've seen during the Obama administration and the ways that um, things have been uh, sort of demonstrated around policing. And they also um, function um, even in places where we don't expect to see them um, in the sort of dynamics of daily interaction. I'm I'm going to go real quick with the time that we have left, John. I'm going to ask you: Do you do you see um, from your from your wonderful research? Do you see light somewhere? <laughs> Even though, I mean, do you see the next generation, the students that you observed, the student that said, I can walk through the hallways and not get stopped, but my friend does. Do you see light on that generation, that maybe they're a little bit more in tune with diversity and how to embrace it and work with it instead of trying to push it to the side? I mean, I am I, I, a pretty optimistic person, and, I, you know, one of the things that I see is a generation of people who have grown up believing in racial equality and having that be something that um, is um, ex- sort of largely the, the acceptable way of thinking about race. Um, and I think many of the people we talk to, many of the young people we talk to, also recognize the racial inequality and felt like, felt compelled to try to do something about it. Uh, many of the people in the schools in the school that um, we studied and many schools around the country that we've spoken with are also invested in making a difference and making a change and were you know in fact open to us coming in invited us in to study their school so that we could help them think about some of these problems um, and so I you know I, I'm I'm heartened by the fact that people who go into education tend to be deeply invested in, in creating more equitable societies a, a society that functions um, to um, bring people together rather than tear them apart, prepare people for democratic participation and civic engagement. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about the possibilities while I'm still um, clear about what some of the limitations are. And if I could say mm-hmm. a little bit about some of the work I'm doing in Madison now with the Madison Public yes, Schools, yes. Um, yes. we're working um, with UW and the Madison uh, Public Schools in a partnership called Forward Madison where we're linking the research and um, knowledge base at the university with the practice-based research, uh, practice-based knowledge in the school system to try to create more equitable schools there in Madison. Um, and so we're working on issues of teacher induction processes and coaching around racial equity, um, principal induction and coaching processes, um, as well as professional development practices that focus specifically on equity. Um, based issues and racial justice, 
And what I found is that the teachers, the principals who I've spoken with are deeply committed to making a difference. They don't uh, always know exactly what steps to take, um, right. but they're working really hard to make a difference every day. And so one of the things that makes me optimistic is being able to work with educators around the country and in my local community who um, are doing great things and plan to do even better things as they continue to work. Wow. Well, tell us, John, please give a shout to your where we can go get more information, your website, or if you're on Facebook or Twitter, or where, where can people find more information on you? Well, we have. Uh, you can go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, uh, School of Education. I'm in the Department of Education Leadership and Policy Analysis. Um, I'm also um, can be contacted of our book website, despite the best intentions. Um, is also um, live and available. Very, very, very good. good. Well, you, you have a, you have a oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you, I was going to say, you have, you have such a, a, a calm and 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 soothing demeanor with such a fancy pants uh, <laughs> title, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have such a calming effect. It must be the sociologist that you and Keith have such soothing and calming effects on <laughs> on me. But I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. So so much. I'll turn it over to Keith. But thank you for being with us, and we would love to have you back. We we must have you back for an update. This was something that it hits every corner of America. We all need to embrace diversity and be happy that we're in a diverse uh, community, and not uh, push it to the side and force people into uh, pigeonholes. We need to get more of your thought and more of your research out there. So. Definitely, we'll push push the book on our website. Well, thank, thank you, you again. so much. Thank you, Naomi. Yeah, and that's Go what ahead, I was going to say. We'll put up some links to his uh, to the book and and other stuff there, so people can find it. I think a lot of our listeners will will find this uh, interview very compelling because uh, mm-hmm. um, it just I think it fits in with what a lot of people that follow our show are interested in. We really haven't quite had a guest like this talk about. Uh, inequality in the schools, particularly at the level of the good schools, which I think is is really um I don't know, to me it's really interesting and so um uh, maybe 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 I'm foolish to think everybody else will be as interested but <laughs> but that both of us are maybe that's a good sign that I think people will um I think there's a lot to learn from this and, and I and I hope uh, I hope people buy the book. I hope educators um, buy it and read it, but I hope parents and and just regular people do as well because uh, I think um, there's there's a lot of uh, great information there, and I, I thought the interview was just outstanding. Um, just um, so much to cover in an hour. You know, I wish we had more time, but I, but I really appreciate you coming and joining us, and and I hope our guests, our listeners enjoyed it as much as both of us hosts did because I, I thought. Uh, a very interesting and important topic. So thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I really had it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh for everybody listening, uh we'll be again here again next week, same time, uh Friday night at ten PM Eastern time. And uh so once again thank you for tuning in and listening. Again our guest was uh John Diamond and on behalf of our guest and Uh, Myself and Naomi, we want to wish everybody a wonderful weekend, and we'll catch you next time. Be kind to your neighbor, and if you go anywhere, drive safe.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 